Then in 1975, I came along. I was abandoned at birth on my birth certificate. My, my name is baby girl Ignacio Gonzalez. And I went to an orphanage for eight months. And then I was fostered for eight months in Manila, Philippines. And then my mom and dad adopted me in 70, 1976. And to, to experience that love, even as an abandoned child and to understand that love, just to grow up with the mom and dad that I have is really special. To be chosen by them is really special. This is the interesting lives of normal people. In this episode, we talk with Brandy Shigley. It's hard to sum up who and what she does, but here are just a few highlights. Even as a little girl, Brandy made handbags, and when she grew up, she started a handbag business. But she's started lots of other fashion-related businesses, and also an entrepreneurial workshop, a marketing business, and on. Curiosity is at her core, as it seems she's a professional tinkerer and entrepreneur. I should also mention that she was orphaned as a baby in the Philippines, and was then adopted into the United States. What's really interesting is that with all her projects, businesses, ideas, and success, she still doesn't define herself as an entrepreneur, and most definitely she doesn't define success financially. And if you were to pay attention to one thing, what I'd encourage you to really listen for in this interview and hopefully learn from Brandy is her unattachment to her projects and businesses. What I mean is that she cares about them, yes, but when it's time for her to move on, her ability to move on to the next chapter in her life without regrets and without looking back is really unusual and amazing. Because she prioritizes her spiritual journey more than anything else, she's someone who wakes up each day and is able to ask, what am I supposed to be doing today? And she does it. And I think it's because she looks at her entire life and all that she does by asking, Sure, you can do what you love what you do, but is it, serve, is it serving anybody? Does it actually have a purpose? How is it making the world a better place? How are you learning um, and growing spiritually we talk a lot more about her faith and at the end of the episode she talks about her life after losing her mom it's really incredible so let's get to it brandy shigley brandy shigley who is the founder of fashion denver has done a lot of stuff with fashion in, in denver um specifically and has also just done a lot of interesting projects and created a lot of, literally created a lot of interesting things. And so I'm really just excited to talk to you, Brandy. Thank you for joining in uh, spending a few hours, a few minutes hanging out with me and the Ryans. Thanks for joining. Oh my gosh, you guys are the <laughs> Jake and the Ryans. That was a good description of Fashion Denver, fashion things in Denver. <laughs> covered it, I guess we could probably move on from that. Even if I said it, I was like, well, that's actually pretty descriptive. Way to go. <laughs> really nailed it. <laughs> really nailed it. Um, Brandy, you have done a lot of different things, and that's what's really exciting. You are the type of person that I look at, and I'm like, man, if I just had the energy and the passion to do all the different types of stuff, even just talking with you for a few moments here on this call, it's clear like you have an energy and a passion and a love for life and meeting new people and so many different things that I think is just so valuable that I think a lot of us, I, I wish I had more of. Can you just talk to us about your journey, who you are, even if you start from the beginning, like where you're born, like where you came from, and then you know, really want to hear a lot about Fashion Denver. 
Okay. Um, and the story. I was born in a hospital in Manila, Philippines, May 14th, 1975. My biological parents left me at the hospital, and I was what was called a foundling, which is just an abandoned baby. And shortly thereafter, I went into an orphanage in downtown Manila. One of the things about Manila is there is 1.8 million orphans in the city of Manila. And I was one of them. And I went to an orphanage in downtown Manila for eight months. And then I was fostered for the next eight months. And I was adopted by the Shigley family at the age of 16 months. My mother, my adopted mother, had a hysterectomy when she was 19. So she was not able to have kids. She fell in love with my dad and pretty much knew from the get-go that she wanted to marry him. And sure enough, they got married, and in 1973, before I came along, they adopted my brother Wayne, who was found in a shoebox at the end of the Vietnamese War. Wow. So their hearts already are just like us, oh, full of love. So I was adopted at the age of 16 months. I grew up in North Glen, Colorado, until I was about seven years old. Then we moved to Southeast Aurora, and where I pretty much grew up from age seven until 22 years old. And when I was in third grade, I loved, not even I loved, I was obsessed with making paper purses. I would make a paper wallet to go into my paper purse and a paper ID to go into my paper wallet to go into my paper purse. And I just loved compartmentalizing things. So I would set up my Trapper Keeper folder and I would be behind the Trapper Keeper with my markers and my construction paper and my tape and my string and I'd be making what is now the first line of B. Shigley designs. So at a very young age, third grade, nine years old, obsessed with making paper purses. Flash forward to high school, I was an average student. I think I graduated with the 2.3 grade point average. My priority in high school was being social. I ditched class all the time to just do whatever, go to the skate park, hang out with my friends. And the only things that I really liked in high school were my business classes. And I loved business classes because it meant that we got to leave school and go compete and go hang out with other students mm. doing these cool business strategy, which to me was just fun. And as we get more into the story, I'll go into just having fun with things that you do. I graduated from high school, got into Metro State College of Denver, that's now Metro University. And my first three years of college, I was about to get kicked out. I had a 1.7 grade point average. <laughs> my priorities were being at the skate park, and snowboarding. And at that time I was competitively snowboarding and I would rearrange my schedule to, to go snowboarding. So I would snowboard first half of the day and then try to make it to class by two o'clock. And anyway, it wasn't great. I ended up with that 1.7 GPA Metro as we were about to get kicked out of here. And I took this speech class with Dr. Carl Johnson. And the, my very first speech, he said, Brandy, I want you to speak about what you're passionate about. And I was like, I'm really passionate about the Beastie Boys. Can I speak about them? And he was like, yes. <laughs> so I did my first presentation and aced it. And I aced it because I was, I love the Beastie Boys. I love every single bit of music that they, they made. I knew the, the history and I started to see that teacher changed my life because he said, I just want you to speak about what you're passionate about. And as soon as I felt what it felt like to actually not be in the school mind, 
but in more of a passion set mind of like, what do I love right now and how can I share it? That's when school just totally changed for me. And I, I started to understand that it's okay that I don't learn like all the other students. I'm not a textbook and take a test girl. I'm a like action, give me an activity, give me something that I can make and build and present. And I, I within three years, it took me six years to graduate. I graduated with honors at the top of my class in speech communications with a, a specialty in organizational communication and communication theory. And I can't help but think of it, that it was Dr. Carl Johnson saying, be passionate. And that, that, has been, that was a game changer for me. So in 1999, I wrecked on my snowboard. I was clearing a 25 foot gap and doing this huge method grab like, <laughs> and I overshot the jump and just went bam. So when you overshoot a jump, you land in the flat and it's not really awesome to do that. So I got cocky and I went back up there and I'm like, I'm gonna do it again. And right before I hit the jump, I speed checked and I just went, and totally crashed. To make a long story short, my snowboarding career was over. I didn't break anything, but my ego was broken. Mm. And sometimes I feel like when you fall that hard, you either get back up and you keep going or you're done. And I was done. And that was actually simultaneously when I got a sewing machine as a gift. And I was like, I should try to make a handbag. Like, I love handbags. So I, I made my first handbag and then I made my second handbag and then my third and I'm like whoa this is fun the next thing I knew I had 17 handbags and I'm like what should I do with all these bags so I took them to a friend's pool party and sold every single bag and I had people asking me for custom designs and granted these are not fancy handbags these were squares that were sewn with a handle on it that was just a little cloth handle and I had a friend at that time say, Brittany, you should build a website. And I was like, huh, I don't know how to do that. This is 1999. So there were no, there was no WordPress. There was no technology that there is right now. And on Microsoft Word and HTML, I ended up building and launching bshigley.com, 1999. Three months later, if you type hold in on, handbag, hold on, hold on, hold yeah. You got asked to build a website. And I someone, built my website because someone you said just you built need a website. website. I know, but you, you just, I feel like there's a big chunk there that what, how did you struggle in school because you're not passionate and now all of a sudden you teach yourself how to build a website. How did you go about doing that? And to clarify, this is before Squarespace or yeah. any of those other things. <laughs> yeah. I would assume. Also, I think before Google. <laughs> yeah, before Google. Yeah. This was before Google. I just want, needed to learn it. I need to, I, I need a website. Cool. I don't have stuff to pay. I don't know. I don't have money to pay someone. So I'll just teach myself. So I just taught myself. It wasn't fancy. It was literally Microsoft Word, save as HTML, FTP it up onto my server. Like, I oh. even probably had Microsoft clip art. Wait, did you buy websites for dummies is that how you figured even no i just no i just figured it out <laughs> sounds secure though sounds okay. super duper secure <laughs> so anyway three months later on aol if you type in handbag i came up number three for handbag <laughs> whoa amazing and that was before i realized like to screenshot something for history but so i was number three 
when you type in handbag, very shortly after, within six months, the internet in my little Microsoft Word website went viral, which is now what we know that as. And I was selling my bags within that first six months in London, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Denver, and LA. And that was crazy. And at that same time, the press started rolling in. So like the Rocky Mountain News wrote about me and I wrote to the, I wrote to the fashion editor of the Rocky Mountain News and I'm like, hi, I'm obsessed with making handbags. Take a look. And she wrote me back and she was like, Brandy, I love your bags and I love your story. And I want to write about you. So I'm like, really? Like little old me who's making these not very well-made bags in my kitchen and she wants to write about me. And what the thing I learned about that was like, never be afraid to put yourself out there. Even if you're just beginning, even if you were just starting out your business, put yourself out there. So I put myself out there and uh, that article ended up snowballing and I was in every magazine and news station and really having to learn how to have a business fast because suddenly the sales were coming at me like crazy. So you just take this, you, you write to the editor and then it just takes off after that basically because mm -hmm. she and all these other people want to interview you too because they like your story and your business mm -hmm. yeah i was in 2001 or two i was the top up-and-comer of the year with mike shanahan coach of the broncos oh my god what year, <laughs> what year was 2002 that? wow that was a big year 2001 2002 wow. okay so hold on i feel like we've covered a lot of ground we're we've gone from manila philippines to competing with mike shanahan not competing, getting to be with him as beating. top up and comer. No, you beat, beat him. him big time. No, I did you're not still, beat him. You're still here. So there's, <laughs> that, there's that. So hold, I feel like there's a bunch of questions that I'm not going to get to all. But first of all, it seems like we should probably interview Car Dr. Carl Sandberg. So Dr. Carl Johnson, which I Dr. don't Carl know Johnson. if he is alive because this was like well, 25 years ago. We're going to find out. Okay, Dr. Carl Johnson, if you can find him. I don't know, why I, I, don't know why I said Sandberg, it's way off. The other <laughs> thing is, so I forgot that I ever did this, but you're talking about making little handbags out of paper. I huh. did this weird thing where I would make paper butterflies oh. and, I would, and I would have outfits for the butterflies, but it was like ninja outfits and like superhero <laughs> outfits and they had like guns. That explains why you started that ninja outfit. I'm going to have to return that. to that to figure out how to actually make my butterfly ninja business take off. Yeah, I had a pretty ripping pog making business oh, yeah. back in elementary school. Oh, yeah. uh, I would take baseball cards and then put like a JC Penny box on the back of them. And those babies, I sold them like hotcakes. I'm sure you did. Awesome. In Westward in 2001, you were voted best local purse designer. And Mike Shanahan was voted best local coach. Really? In the Westward? That's what I, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, this was definitely, this is like, I got to go to Flatirons Mall and have a photo shoot. And I was at pole eight and a half by 11 of the left side of the center of 5280 Magazine. I'm just, I just want to know who you were up against for local purse designer. There was like three of them by then. You were up till 2002. Okay, so 2002, top of my game, magazines, television, where do I go now, relationship ends, 
I'm like, whoa, I'm all brand new and I have nothing holding me back. So I sold everything that I owned and except a sewing machine and my skateboard and my bike and a bag of fabric. I'm, and I sold everything, packed up my car and moved to San Diego. And that's really when I learned so much valuable valuable lessons. Like in Denver, I was like, I didn't have to do any work. Like press was coming at me, boutiques were hollering at me. And I thought I would just move to San Diego and everything would just be the same. Only nobody in San Diego knew who I was. So it was there that I had to go out and pound the streets and introduce myself to boutiques and uh, connect with the writers myself and like really do the, the, the work on my own as opposed to having it handed down to me. And in that time, I ended up getting a job in the skateboarding world. And I, that's when I got, I was planning skate demos and working with the pros and writing press releases and sending them to Trans World and Skateboarder Magazine and Thrasher. And when I was working for that skateboarding marketing company, that's when I learned the importance of branding. That's when I learned how do you write a press release. That's what I learned about the importance of a logo and all of that good stuff while simultaneously still doing my handbags and going up to LA and San Francisco to do these fashion markets with all these amazing real West Coast designers. And I got to experience what it was like to be a designer on a bigger level. And I got to experience what the fashion industry was like in LA and in San Francisco. And to make a long story short, I was out in California for two and a half years and I ended up moving back to Denver almost as quickly as I had moved out to San Diego. And when I came back here, um, I had no idea what I was doing with my life. I, I didn't know, I just didn't know what I was doing. And I was living in my parents' basement. I was bussing tables. And it was when I was bussing a table that I was like, hey, why don't I start a company doing fashion markets like what I did in LA and in San Francisco? And that very night, I went home, I built Fashion Denver, I bought the domain, fashiondenver.com, I built the website, and with the girl, the women that I knew and the men that I knew who were designing, I produced my very first fashion market at that restaurant that I was bussing tables at. This was 2004 in October. By December of 2004, I produced the first ever fashion Denver fashion market that featured like 30 designers and it was in a big warehouse that's right down in the neighborhood that I still work in and that's really where fashion Denver was born it was born because I had learned what it was like to be an independent designer and then my experience in the fashion industry in LA and in San Francisco and learning about branding and learning about marketing and PR Putting all of that together is really what formulated creating Fashion Denver. And at the time, I didn't know what it would turn into. Mm. I just knew that I wanted to share what I had learned with other designers and small businesses. So I started consulting individuals. That's when I started my Do What You Love What You Do workshop. And we see that everywhere. We see that everywhere. Blackberry used it. And honestly, back then, nobody was using that. And uh, I just thought it was like, duh, we all need to do what we love and love what we do. I'm just curious. You So you basically decided to create a collaborative of designers. So a bunch of people doing what they're passionate about. I was cur I'm curious how that was received. Was anyone bringing them together? Were they all having to do their own thing and you were bringing a new concept to light? Or what was this pitch of let's collaborate 
to create a market to bring people to that might buy from all of us? What was that like? They were receptive because it wasn't being done and it was an opportunity to for these designers to get out and sell their designs to the public all in one space. So what were, how were they slinging their product before you, other than the market? I have no idea. Yeah. So they were, so you were offering, I, I'm just thinking that restaurants intentionally collaborate on location, right? Because it helps their business. I think this is a big idea, collaboration. And we have a ton of silos out there in a bunch of different ecosystems. Collaboration is a really big deal. And I think you bringing that to a group of people that are probably out there struggling and not seeing this idea, that's a pretty big idea to bring to them. Were they seeing it or were you the only one seeing it? I can't answer that. That's a great question. But again, I think it's like, this kind of, this isn't necessarily a good thing, but I'm, I, I think I'm just, I've, I'm always in the moment that I don't see the bigger picture. And Ryan, I know entrepreneurially, you and I have gotten into this conversation. Like I have a hard time being like, what's my five year goal? I'm like, what am I doing right now? And so I think I was doing these events because why not? It's going to be fun. And then when they kept, when people kept wanting more and seeing that I can keep going with these events, I just was like, okay, let's keep doing this. So were you intuitively picking up on what was needed or were you just getting lucky? I would say, I, I don't think it has to do with luck. I think it was being intuitive, but also just having fun doing it. Hmm. Okay. Can you give us, describe what these collaborative events are? Um, yeah. So if you could- people that might not have any idea. So I know, and actually when, Ryan calls it a collaborative event. Collaborative is not the really the first word I would think of when I do these events, but it totally is collaboration. But if you could imagine a really cool artsy warehouse where 25 to 40 designers all come together, they have a booth, they're selling their designs, there's three fashion shows throughout the day, and it's an opportunity for the public to come and meet these designers, shop, and see the fashions on the runway. That's what it was. Is that what still is today? I haven't done a fashion market, oh, since October, my when I celebrated 15 years of fashion Denver. Another follow-up question. I remember going to one of these several years ago uh, before skinny jeans were a thing. And I remember Ryan Holdeman wearing some skinny jeans. Are you the one that really got him into skinny jeans to begin with? And did you invent skinny jeans? I did not invent skinny jeans. Ryan was just bigger than the model who was no longer able to wear those jeans. And when he put them on, they were skinny jeans. <laughs> oh, well, maybe he did. So yeah, maybe. Ryan may have, that was 2008 at Taxi. It was. So is Fast in Denver, is it primarily an event-based organization that happens a few times a year? Yes. Okay. But then for a good three to four years, I had a boutique. That's where I met Ryan and his brother and and this was pretty early on in the fashion denver days it was probably within four to five years of having fashion denver and i had a boutique in what's now like a super trendy part of denver the golden triangle back then it wasn't but i yeah i was like why do i just need to have events let's just have a store so again i wasn't planning on having a store it just seemed like it was what needed to be done and, and I did not like it. I had that store for three to four years and I didn't, the thing I loved most about it was meeting the designers 
and wrapping the things up that people would buy like a burrito. I think another thing that you did, by the way, just to give my perspective on it was, I think you were, you were, a, you were the kind of personification of all this learning that was happening from all these boutiques. You were capped by help, by being connected with and helping all these different boutiques and one designers on their own however they were doing what they were doing to distribute their material their products and stuff you were capturing all the learnings and then you were being a consultant whether it was formally or informally across all of them and i think first of all you were being you were being this consultant or one one of the things fashion denver did was had a service which was let me coach you on what's being learned across the city around running your own fashion brand. So you help people brand their own thing. You helped them figure out how to sell it. I think you became this hub of the knowledge that was being gained in the fashion industry in Denver, Colorado. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been really awesome to be, share our friendship over the past decade because I feel like you've experienced a lot of the ebbs and flows and the entrepreneurial ups and downs with me. And that's awesome to be where I'm at now, which is wherever I'm at and to having sharing that history with me. Yeah. I'd like to take it back to handbags. Okay. What are you doing with <laughs> handbags now? Are you selling them? Is it still a part of any business you're doing? I have not made, I had a little mini trunk show at the beginning of the year where I was doing custom handbags. I had a whole bunch of fabric. People could come and pick fabric and then I'd make them a bag. It's not my passion. Hmm. I, I enjoy making it. I enjoy making bags once in a while, but I almost feel like right now in my life, I'm not attached to, <laughs> I'm not attached to anything I have done. Like I'm not attached. Yeah. Putting fashion events together is super fun. Making bags fun. Consulting super fun. But that's not who I am. I I am I I do enjoy it and I, I have consulting uh clients right now that I'm thoroughly enjoying. But what I I wouldn't uh call myself like a consultant. Like where I feel like I'm at with everything is I just want to be, <laughs> I, I just want to be the hands and feet of the Lord. I just want to be his voice. And if that means I'm seeing a fashion show, cool, awesome. Like I'm going to, I want to bring, I want to bring that light and that joy and that peace to other people. And so that's really like what my focus is. I, I just want to, I want to be used in whatever way that looks like. And there's a way to make, there's a way I'm making money, which is I helped to start a company designing dress apparel for bodybuilders. And that's awesome. I'm VP of marketing. I work three days a week. And then on my projects, I'm doing web development and PR and some consulting. But in the forefront of it, I want to be, I want to be more, I just want to be out there sharing my own journey through the things that I've been through mm, yeah. and just, I, I want to, I really want to be but an, an evangelist. I don't know if that's the right word to say. I think people might have a negative connotation to that, but I want to be out there sharing the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We accidentally got to the end of the story and skipped over like the meat, which I was doing what we do. No, I just, I wanted to go back to that. Cause I know that leads into your present day story. So 
I mean, my mind stuck on the fact that we just skipped over like the main thing, but that is the main thing, though. Because I, I just think you did that. You have this podcast is about passion projects, right? And and Jake pursuing a passion project, and you, know, you ran this workshop for a long time, where you first of all help people kick off their passion project, but also saw similar to what we were just talking about around the fashion designers, you got to see a ton of people that were in that initial stage asking those questions about their their passion, what they're trying to do and actually build something. And I'm curious, first of all, can you tell us about the workshop? And then also, are there obvious lessons that you saw across all the people that came in? That's good. So do what you love what you do, the workshop. I started that in 2002 when I was learning how to be a designer. And it was, it was, and is, I haven't taught a workshop for three years, maybe even longer. It was like, what is it that you feel passionate about and how can you turn it into a business? So cool. You love making paper butterflies with ninja outfits and you started a business doing that. And how can you get it out there into the world and how can you sell it? And what do you need to build your website? And it was like all the step-by-step of how do you get your little business, your little passion up and running. And that was really, that is the basis for that workshop. I don't necessarily feel like I relate to that workshop anymore. I think like I can definitely, there's definitely tips on how to get yourself out there, but that's, I feel like life is more about understanding why you were created and what your purpose is and how can you put that out into the world. And sure, you can do what you love and love what you do, but is it serve, Is it serving anybody? Does it actually have a purpose? How is it making the world a better place? How are you learning um, and growing spiritually, emotionally, and... So you're saying the workshop didn't help you get at what you were passionate about. It assumed you already knew that and then it taught you how to execute it, basically? Yes. Okay. So you're saying you're more, help, you want to help people get at their what, like the thing that they're going to do, not how they're going to do it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I would love to recreate, do what you love. I would love to, I would love to do this workshop where I am in my life celebrating 21 years of entrepreneurship having this walk that I've been on and this journey that I've been on with just being an entrepreneur and my faith, because that's like a pretty, that hasn't been there that whole time and putting that all together to see like, well, wow, what do I really find to be really be important? Cause I think the things I thought were important back then, I don't think are important now. One thing I've, we've come back to a few times is a question of whether you actually do need to love what you do in the sense of an occupation or a job. I think we've started this as a quest to, we've been, we're both, Holden and I are both Gandalf walking with Jake through his journey to find his rings or whatever it is. Super duper insulting, but keep going. <laughs> I actually don't remember the, all the plot lines of Lord of the Rings, but. Jake, Jake. Yeah. 
pay you so much. Is that right? Yeah. But we started with a question of, can you just, can the job just be fine? And maybe you find passion elsewhere. You find other things that you do that you love. And maybe that's just like family time, or maybe that's you fish on Saturdays or something, but how do you see it? Does it need to be like your job, your occupation, the thing that pays you? It's awesome when you love your job. That's super awesome. But I also think that when you can find a purpose in a job, even if you don't like that job, but you still find a purpose and you still are manifesting your purpose, then it becomes fulfilling and then you love it. What I'm hearing is that there's purpose to be found potentially outside of being enamored with the fundamentals of your job. Like maybe you don't love your coworkers, but you feel like you being there and being a positive contributor or a positive force in the, in the team that you're yeah. in, like that could be the drive more than what whatever your company. Yeah, is. that is exactly That's what I heard. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, thank you, Finn. That was great. But <laughs> I really love the scripture, whatever you do unto the Lord. Whatever you do, if you're a grocery bagger, do it unto the Lord. What does that mean to do it under, unto the Lord? What does that mean to you guys to do something unto the Lord? That's a great question. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if I, I don't, I certainly do not feel like I've been able to have figured it out. I don't know if many people really have, but I feel like that's probably not something that I actually intentionally do. Like it would be cool that if at the beginning of each day, I said every activity, every conversation I have, every meeting, mm -hmm. let it be for the Lord. Like that would yeah. be, that would be pretty cool. I feel like if that was a, a, a standard mindset that I had at the beginning of each day, and it currently is not. So you are now challenging me to do something new, maybe in the morning. For me, one of the things that that is creating a safe place for others. Like I, I would, mm. one of the things I run into as a conflict is pastors and other Christians think that do unto the Lord is bring prayer and Jesus crashing into every context. And in my mind, mm -hmm. it's actually not about me being the star. It's not about me being the wisest person in the room. It's not about yeah. my point of view on what religion is or faith is. It's actually about me showing up for other people, creating safe places for them to be who they are, their purpose yes. who they are. And it's about helping them see themselves better, identify their truth better, identify where they're actually be honest with themselves about where they're succeeding or where they're failing and be able to start to plant positive seeds from that mm. place in their life and in their mindset and in their thinking. It's not about me bringing my point of view on the world, yeah. crashing into every context, because that's not a safe place for people yeah. to already agree with me. That's bunk. <laughs> it's good. That is so true. Because it's like when you have that peace and when you have that joy, all you really want to do is have other people feel that. And how do you feel that? How do you share that? By letting people be vulnerable, by letting people feel like they're in a safe space, and by letting people know how known and loved they are. I think, I think of it as like an elementary school teacher. If that teacher creates a context where, let's just say Christianity is a common topic, the like two thirds of the room that are Christians all feel like this is the greatest classroom of all time. And the one thirty who aren't don't even feel like they exist. And yeah. like it's a dangerous place to be to feel the way they feel. And I that I, I do not believe in that. Yeah. It's actually about creating a place where one hundred percent of those people feel yep. absolutely safe and feel like they can be who they are at that moment. Like I love Mr. Rogers' approach, which is like, you're perfect just the way you are. 
and I love you just the way you are, and you're safe here just the way you are. Um, is my approach. I think maybe to to build off that, I'm not saying what I do. I'm saying what I say. I think there's maybe a, maybe a way that I would think of it is are the things that you're doing sort of contributing to like a kingdom come or a kingdom go, you know? And, and I think if it's like on earth as is in heaven, for me, it's like when you step outside of yourself to serve somebody, to not say the thing that you really want to say or to give time to somebody that you feel like I just like really I don't want to give this person my time that's a kingdom come thing and and I think that's that's doing what you do unto the Lord I think and it's basically it's mostly I think probably choosing the less selfish thing to do mostly if you need a if you need a, a heuristic for that and most of the things that just serve like my selfish now need are probably the things that are more like kingdom go kind of moving on we have a few questions left that we have written down and one of it which is and i think grand holdman probably wrote this one down is you're one of the most joyful people that i've ever met and i think that's ryan saying that because <laughs> uh, we just met could you maybe unpack like where that joy comes from because it sounds to me like it's not just from making it's not about just making a handbag. It's not just about running a workshop or creating these events. It sounds like it just goes a lot deeper. Like all mm -hmm. of your different pageant projects come from much deeper place than not just like the thing that you're doing as you just described. Like where is that joy that, that Ryan knows so well? Like where does that come from? I think it comes from the Lord, but maybe what it comes from is being abandoned and then being adopted. Maybe it comes from seeing I don't know actually if this is where it comes from, but it would make sense that I am joyful because I realize I am not abandoned. So there's joy mm. in the life that I've had. Yeah. I want to say, I'm pretty sure Finn wrote that question oh, to get the credit straight, but I do want to tell a quick Brandy story along those lines. So on Brandy's 40th birthday, what she wanted to do was make lunches for the homeless in Denver. And I think this is very brandy, this entire story, because first of all, she had probably, man, like 20 to 30 people show up to help do this, first of all. So on a Saturday. It was probably 10 to 15 people. No, not the participate the entire time. I think it was more like mm -hmm. 20 to 30. Now, there were probably different amounts there, different increments, because people didn't stay the entire time. So it may have been 10 to 15 at any given moment. But it was a very diverse set of people, age-wise, race-wise, gender-wise, et cetera, fashion-wise. We make these, so the first, phase one was make the lunches. Phase one was buy supplies and bring them. Phase two was make the lunches. Phase three was put them into this wagon with balloons, with helium in them on the wagon. And then, and it was actually multiple wagons and then go to, I think it was city Civic park. Center. No, it wasn't city park. What was it? Uh, uh, Civic center park, Civic center park to deliver the meals. Now, what was interesting was now this is Brandy's 40th birthday. Brandy gets on a wagon and just runs off with it running and then jumping into the wagon and letting it roll. So all the other 20 to 30 people are all left in the dust as Brandy's off so excited to go deliver these meals and i think that's a good example of brandy in a nutshell which is first of all on her 40th birthday right not her 41st birthday not your 37th birthday on her 40th a birthday that is, tends to be the type of birthday you make about yourself quite a bit brandy is making homeless meals for homeless people 
and then bringing her entire group, just this huge community of all shapes and sizes together to do it. And everyone's happily showing up to do it. And then Brandy is off to the races with, as a high energy, high excitement, joyful person to go deliver these meals without any of us to take all the credit with all the oh. <laughs> but it was just a good summary yeah i'm just kidding it was a good summary i was saying all these nice things so i had to throw in something sarcastic but headed off um headed off to go deliver these meals and they were needed they were gone in a flash we weren't even in the park very long delivering them so yeah um, good summary of that question that well, i'm 45 and i feel like there is a part of me that will always be nine that is where the joy is in being playful in not caring what anybody thinks and just having this type of fun that you are just like yes and when you can have that kind of fun every day it's real nice I got to read this thing. This is Brandy, best local purse designer, 2001 Westward. We'll put the link in the show notes. Here's what it says. Move over, Monica Lewinsky. There's a new purse designer in the biz. Denver <laughs> Zone, Brandy Shigley is selling her funky fresh handbags at local stores like Decade and Miss Tallulah's, as well as on her very own website. The 20-something Kate Spade wannabe started her career back in the second grade while she was supposed to be reading The Adventures of Frog and Toad. She was cutting wow. purse designs out of scrap paper. She has since graduated to real fabric. And how. Brandy's unique collection includes Mini Moo, a faux cowhide handbag, Little Miss Boss Thang, a more sensible choice for the working girl with its houndstooth pattern in dark business-like colors and reversible dragon slayer, a purse that's denim on one side and 50s vintage Asian dragon pattern on the other. She also designs custom purses to match an outfit or to, ex or to accessorize special occasions like weddings. Brandy's got it in the bag. <laughs> okay. Man, I want that yeah. bag. <laughs> I don't even understand that first sentence about move over Monica Lewinsky. Did she have a... Yeah, because Monica Lewinsky had a handbag business. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. a Kate Spade wannabe either, but whatever. Sounds like it. <laughs> Just to clarify. I would like to ask three remaining, maybe four remaining questions. Passion projects that have flopped. Is there anything that comes to mind and even what you learned have not succeeded in the way? It's interesting. I like the way that you, when you say that, I don't believe this sounds, people might think I'm overly optimistic, but I don't believe in flop. I just believe in, okay, turn a different direction. So there's been things that I've done. Like a pivot. Yeah, a pivot. Geez, what has been a flop? Some could say that me starting having a boutique, maybe that was a flop to me because I didn't love it. I realized I didn't love it at all. So maybe that was a flop, but at the same time, I learned so much that wouldn't be a flop. I don't, I can't think of anything that's flopped. Okay. Here's another question that, I, that has been, I've been tossing around as, as I've been thinking about you. You're obviously somebody that understands branding, branding, not brandy, that, that understands the importance of branding and self-promotion. And even just looking at your website, it's just talking about all these accomplishments, which t makes total sense. I'm not knocking on that. Mm -hmm. But how do you balance like self-promotion and with what seems to me like in this short conversation, an immense amount of humility? My friend, Sarah built that website. I cannot build a website like that. And I like, I, I, <clears throat> 
cringe when I hear the word self-promotion. So that website, like, I'm like, who is that? Oh, that's me. Like, that doesn't feel like me because I'm just a regular girl. So I think, yeah, I don't know how to answer that except to say that I didn't build that website. And sometimes I'm embarrassed to see that website. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, I really have done all those things. So I don't know. Do you know for me, Ryan? (laughs) I've always felt like... I've always felt like we we have goofed up clarity on what humility and, and all that is. I think one part of being able to brand or self-promote or do an introduction is helping people know how you can be helpful to what they're trying to do. Like if I go into a meeting and I introduce myself and I just go, I'm Ryan, I work hard. That's nice and humble, but that person's like, okay, well now I'm gonna have to invest a bunch of time. Is that nice and humble? It's saying that I just work hard, not that I have any accomplishments or whatever so that I am a humble worker kind of a thing and and I watch people do that with their intros all the time and I think what's a miss about it is that it really inhibits working together because it's hard for people to know what you can contribute or like how to put you in a position to do something valuable or whether that be valuable like in the spirit of capitalism or valuable in the spirit of helping other people or whatever and so I think that there's, it's goofed up on, on what humility really is, in my opinion, because I don't think effective communication about what you bring to the table or what your value is or what your skills are is not a uh, challenge to whether you're humble or not. Yeah, that's interesting because there's humility and there's confidence. There's being humble and there's having confidence in who you are as a child of God. And there's a line there. And yeah, that's a really great question. But yeah, self-promoting, I don't like self-promoting. And I even feel, I've always felt really weird when people are like, you're really good at promoting yourself. And I'm oh God, it sounds horrible. And it's like with the media, I didn't go out and seek that media. They saw me. Like I'm not out there. Hey everybody, look at what I'm doing. I'm just doing what I'm doing. And I feel very grateful that the media has wanted to know more. Hmm. And one of the reasons why I ask is because I feel like, you know, if I'm honest, like anytime I ever start accomplishing something or feel like I do something well, I'm like, wow, pretty awesome. Look at this cool, this cool thing I do. And then fast forward by a couple of weeks, I fail at something and I'm like, oh, I'm the worst. And so I'm always just interested in seeing people that have accomplished a lot, like how they just keep their head on straight without kind of wavering between those two ends of, I'm great, oh, I suck. I think it's about to be able to be recognized for just being me and going through my journey the way that I have and then be recognized for that. It's more of a way of being like, wow, just be who you are and don't try and be something else. And when you get that recognition for being who you are, awesome, you're on, you're, something's going, Good, but when I like think about oh the top up and comer of the I don't I was just a freaking girl making handbags in my kitchen lost as ever so I don't ever look at those accolades and I'm like oh yeah like I look at it more and be like geez Louise I'm like an imperfect girl trying to do something and it got recognition and that's awesome yeah that's cool my grandpa who's a pastor, started out Mennonite. He says that 
totally differently than that, which is that you are perfect. You're exactly who you should be right here, right now. And you're on a journey and you'll be perfect when you're at the next step of the journey as well. I never felt perfect. I think his point is that perfect isn't about getting it all right. Perfect isn't about not making mistakes. Perfect is different than that. Perfect is about being special and being loved and being at the phase that you're at in your journey. Yeah. Both seem accurate for sure. All right. I have three questions left. Okay. You've done a podcast before. Any advice for people that are trying to start, that are starting a podcast? My advice for people starting a podcast is don't have these very hard, don't have hard expectations on what the podcast is going to be. Let it evolve into what it's becoming. And then you will narrow your focus and then you will see what it is that you truly are feeling uh, like passionate about covering. And I think that a lot of times people are like analysis paralysis. I need to make sure it's going to be this great and wonderful. And then, then there's all these expectations and it doesn't flow because they're trying to achieve this greatness. They don't even know what that greatness is yet. Yeah, no, it does. And that's not the first time I've heard it. So I think there's probably something to it for sure. I've heard other people just say the same thing. Let it evolve. Don't have any solid expectations. So some of the standard questions we ask, books that you recommend. I'm looking at your answers in a doc right now, but I'll let you actually answer. What books do you recommend? The Bible, which I never thought I would say. And the four-hour work week. And I will be honest, I have never read the four-hour work week all the way. But the things that I have read, I'm like, that's valuable. I could do, I, I like that. I'm not very good at um, reading. So I, right now I'm reading Corey Ten Boom's book called The Hiding Place. I love David Sedaris. He's hilarious. David Sedaris in his book Naked. But I just, I, I read the Bible and the four hour work week. You know, this is a meta podcast. So this is a podcast about what should Jake make a podcast about that's to help people figure out what they should make their podcast about, which is all a podcast is all a metaphor for what are you passionate about and how do you go about building something that's something you can do something with. Maybe other people can contribute to a passion project, if you will. So we want to help people build their podcasts. So what exercises, tool or tools or practices do you think are helpful for people in really getting at what are they passionate about? And then you know, how to go about attacking that passion. I love going on prayer walks. I love just leaving the world behind and getting out in the quiet and just talking to God and asking him to direct my path. That might seem like super like out there, but when you do that and you do that expectantly, I feel like you will be directed. So wait, wait. all coming back around. What? Yep. I think that one of the things that has been the most life-changing for me is being confident to be vulnerable, being confident to share your brokenness, being confident to sharing your lost, your lostedness, like being confident to be like, I have no idea what in the world I'm doing with my life. Just want to let you know, world, because the world's all feeling like that. And it's oftentimes when we share our vulnerabilities and our brokenness that's when we heal and that's when it floods in sometimes we can be our biggest clog to our drain because we overthink things when really it's right in front of us this whole time yeah no i agree with that one. that's good you had some takeaways i think you wanted to leave us with oh okay, what are my takeaways 
Number one, incorporate fun into everything you do, even if it's not fun. We have to make time to enjoy life, even if it's a five-minute tickle fest. Number two, surround yourself with people that lift you up and you can lift them up while simultaneously making time for people that need to be lifted up. Number three, get outside yourself and serve others. That's where all the magic happens. Number four, get deep in conversation and be vulnerable. That's where healing and growing happens. And number five, dream big. Before we started officially interviewing Brandy, we had a quick side conversation about her mom passing away about a year ago. So before we end today's episode, we thought you want to hear this portion of the conversation as well. But my mom passed away last June. Yeah. And to experience her in the end of her life was like one of the most incredible things that I've ever experienced. And anyway, make a long story short, my dad came over for dinner. My brother and I are roommates. I And it was just awesome. We were trying to remember the chickens' names, my parents' chickens' names that got eaten by foxes. <laughs> and I just swished down on Facebook and there was a video of my mom saying, here's the chickens' names. Oh, Ida, wow. Oh, wow. Agnes. And it was just like, wow, like my mom is, it's just, it's been a journey to experience that. And to hear it as a year and a couple months later and the impact that her life and her death still brings to me. And so it was just a really cool moment of celebrating being with my family, celebrating my mother and knowing that she's here in my heart, in all of our hearts and really just seeing God work through that and seeing the strength that he's giving us and the joy. And it's just been amazing. It's been like, I was thinking about that earlier. I think about this a lot, actually. If God's will will be done, but are we really okay with God's will being done? Was I okay to be like, okay, God, if it's your will, my mom dies. And it was okay. And that to be able to fully trust and, and trust his will, even if it means losing someone, holy moly. Has the death of your mom, you have a brother and a dad. It's, was it a family of four then growing up? Yes. Okay. In what ways can you describe like how her death has actually brought you guys closer together now? And in, mm. in, in what ways has that like really been impactful and really improved your relationships? And if, if, if it, it has. has, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, th I think it's important to also know the very root of things. My brother was found in a shoebox premature at the end of the Vietnamese war. And my mom and dad adopted him when he was three months old. My mom had a hysterectomy when she was 19, so she couldn't have hmm. kids. Then in 1975, I came along. I was abandoned at birth. On my birth certificate, my, my name is baby girl Ignacio Gonzalez. And I went to an orphanage for eight months. And then I was fostered for eight months in Manila, Philippines. And then my mom and dad adopted me in 1976. And hmm. So to, and this is, this really has been something that I've come to understand as I get older, but I was never abandoned. I was loved. Like I was like, God had a plan for me and I had an orphanage take care of me. I was fostered by somebody who cared for me and to, to experience that love, even as an abandoned child and to understand that love has just been incredible. But 
Anyway, my mom just loved me. Like, she, when she adopted me, she sang guitar to me. She spent so much time with me and my brother. And just to grow up with the mom and dad that I have is really special. To be chosen by them is really special. So hmm. to be able to be there until the end of my mom's life and then to experience the beautiful life that we've had together. Of course, there were rocky, crazy times that weren't so awesome. But to experience that life and then to be at a point in my life where I fully appreciate who she is and how she shaped me and how my dad shaped me. And then to be able to celebrate her with her in my heart and just knowing that she's made me up. She's been a huge part of who I am. And then to be able to mourn the loss of my mother, my dad's wife of 51 years and to find joy in her memories but then still continue to see how important it is for us to be together as a family. We're getting to know each other in completely new ways. It's like my dad and my brother and me now. I was just writing about it last night, how life is but a vapor. It is but a vapor. Like we are not on this earth very long. So how do we appreciate life and the sorrows and the pain and the suffering? And how can we just make that vapor of a life be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> my, my uncle died a few years ago and, and his, while he was dying, I was thinking about how do you really, how do you prepare yourself for the fact that you're going to lose, especially mm -hmm. anyone older than you, for the most part, you're going to lose unless something even more tragic happens. And so how do you prepare yourself for the lack of someone in a way that you're not like you, I, I think, one of the things that was really cool to see, and I only saw this through social media, but that you and your family got to have this special almost year, it seemed like, of being intentional with each other because you knew that it was possible that your mom wasn't going to be around. So you guys got a special thing where you got to spend yeah. time together. You went on a cruise and you guys did a lot of stuff. Yeah. In a way, losing your mom and the way you did created this like awareness of it so that you could really be grateful for each other and embrace each other while also preparing to be without. And when my uncle mm. died, my, my, fa my uncle's family wasn't ready for it, like his immediate family wasn't ready for it. So they were caught off guard in that way. And so I thought, how do you be prepared for the absence of someone so it doesn't just devastate and wreck everyone while also being grateful and taking advantage of the fact that that person's there? That's a difficult balance to strike, but it seems like one way people do prepare themselves is by by hardening rather than mm -hmm. embracing. So mm -hmm. how do you prepare without hardening? And my feeling about the answer is that it's gratitude, intentional gratitude. We, we've seen friends that lose, that lose a mom and the mom is just oftentimes like the glue that holds together like a family, yeah. like socially. And like when you take away that component in a social sense, like that's just, a, that's a hard thing for people that, Every, that everybody always relies on mom in so many ways to, in, in, yeah. in social relationships. Like, what is it like to figure out how to, to be a family without that rock? I, I know a father is a rock too, but it's just like socially, it's just, how do you do that? I think to answer Ryan and your question, Jake, definitely intentional gratitude is great, but I really think being in the moment and not thinking about the future. And that was huge because I would start to be like, what's it gonna be like when mom is gone? 
instead of just loving my mom mm. right then and there. And it was a struggle to stay in the moment. And even now, like, I'm not trying, we are adjusting to what it's like to not have that rock. But at the same time, I feel like we are in the moment now. We're not like, how's it gonna be? And what's it gonna be? Like, we are here right now. And I think that has been, that's a huge part of it, is to be anxious for nothing. Be yeah. here. The ways that I found joy were being vulnerable and just talking to people, talking to the nurses, cracking jokes. Like mm -hmm. I had my ukulele in there. I was, I played ukulele to my mom up until the night before she passed away. And that was huge because you can either face sorrow and pain with sorrow and pain, or you can face sorrow and pain with joy. Psalm 27, you mentioned it. And that has actually been a really impactful verse to you know, more. My wife and I just dealing with some, some health issues after the birth of our second, our second girl, daughter. So when I read that in your blog the other day, I just almost was in tears just because it just mm. struck me as just, just a powerful verse that has a lot of history. So I'm curious. I do have it up. I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read the part that kind of the end. Psalm 27, 13 and 14. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for mm. the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I would say the significant of it with my mom was that there is goodness in that pain. There's goodness in that suffering. So the there's a blog entry that Jake is referring to that I, whoa, actually, this is, I don't, this is, I haven't read this for a long time, but it's about mourning my mom. And at the very next morning, as I sat down at my desk to begin working, my phone made a sound. Oh yeah! It was an unfamiliar sound. And as I looked at my phone, there was a notification that read, Vicki Shigley likes your verse image for Psalm 2713. There was a week where my freaking cell phone was giving me notices and messages from my mom, who is not <laughs> on this earth. Yeah. And so I was like, what? So um, like somewhere in my Bible app history, I created an image for Psalm 2713. And so that morning when I was feeling low, Vicki Shigley likes your verse for Psalm 2713. And then I looked it up and was reminded, I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait a second. First of all, I don't even have my Bible app set to send me any notifications. I was caught off guard and immediately opened the app, but there was nothing in my notifications that my mom had liked anything. For a brief second, I tried to justify how that could happen. And then instead, I celebrated that my mom is with me always. Can I, can I add one thing about verse 14? Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, wait for the Lord. If I'm not mistaken, that word for wait is kava. And what I was reading once about that word, and it's sprinkled throughout the, the Bible, and it's usually translated as wait. But the way that this guy described it once was that there are different words for faith in the Bible. And the kava, that the word that you use here for, for wait is the strongest. And so like of all the ways of, of there's like could be a wrestling faith or it could be some other sort of active faith, but this one is a waiting faith and that it has the connotation mm -hmm. of being the strongest form of faith in, in Hebrew. And so that's something that's always resonated with me. Like sometimes the thing 
I want to do things. That's just who I am. I want to do things. I want to hedge my bets and whatever, but that the strongest form of faith mm-hmm. there is, is actually to wait. And uh, yeah, so it's always been waiting is so hard. Uh, like of. sometimes I'm like, Lord, am I waiting? If I wait long enough, is it time for me to move? <laughs> and that's, 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 <laughs> that's when amount. I'm like, yeah, pretty sure that's a good amount. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Go to the next thing. That's so good, Finn. I needed to hear that. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for spending some time. This has been a really good conversation and also very fun. So we nailed it. All right. Thank you guys so much for having me on uh, the podcast. Hit that outro music. Brandy. Music and go. Thanks for listening to the interesting lives of normal people. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate giving us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends. It really helps new people find us. And thanks again to Huga for letting us use her music in this episode. You can find more of her music on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.